Uh, hey, as they leave, right, what we want to work really hard to do here at Calvary, what we strive to do here at Calvary is we're all serving in this together. And even some, though some of you are not jumping in some vans, we still have an amazing opportunity to partner with uh, people out of our body who are. And so when you folks, if you're a regular part of Calvary Church, leave the service today, when you go out, there's an info stand with a little TV monitor behind there. And on that, there are two green pieces of paper. If you forget what color piece of paper, think about all of the green lima bean jelly-colored t-shirts that you just saw. And on these two pieces of paper, this one is a bookmark with all the students' names on it, and it'd be great if you would just commit to grabbing this and to praying by name uh, each day, right, uh, throughout the week for these kids. And if you've ever been on a mission trip, and if you haven't, I'd encourage you to be. Uh, God works through it, but it's... It, there's always curveballs and there's always unexpected things. And anything we can do to support our team as they go out and just pray for God's spirit and encourage them and lift them up, it's an amazing and meaningful way that we as a church body can support those members of our body who are going out to reach and impact others with God's love and truth. So grab this. And then if you want more specific ways, uh, some more opportunities about how to pray for them, support them. And then if you haven't yet and you'd love to, just financially support them or partner with them in some other ways. There's information about on this piece of paper um, about how to do that. So we're excited about it. And like I said before, excited about what happened in the DR and just grateful that God allows us opportunities to get ourselves off of the blue chairs and out with people that he loves and adores to try to help them know and let them see how much God loves and cares for them if they don't yet know it. So we're grateful for that. So thanks for those of you. That was your moment, by the way, if you missed it, to have snuck out and not stayed for the rest of the service. <clears throat> but you've now missed that moment. So you're, you're stuck in here. If you got a Bible, uh, grab it. If you don't have one, there's some out there. If you have a device, open it up. <clears throat> and what we do if you're visiting Calvary is most every week, we open up a book of the Bible and we preach through it. We're finishing up kind of these standalone sermons that we're going to keep working through for the next six or five or six weeks. And then we're jumping into, on September 11th, the book of Revelation. And we'll be in that for a long but good time. But uh, it's not going to be just a week. So don't worry. If you miss week one, there'll be week 701 that you can come on back for. Uh, if you got your Bible, open it up. We are in John 8. John 8. And we're in a series, like I said, studying uh, these seven <clears throat> statements that Jesus made about himself. He made seven I am statements. And throughout the next few weeks of the summer, we're studying each one of the I am. And these statements really help us understand some more things about Jesus and who he was. And as they do that, they also help us understand some ways that we can respond to what he's revealed himself and uh, how they challenge us and encourage us. And the amazing thing that's so good is some of people in this church love this series so much that even at such an amazingly young age, they're like, I can't get enough of these I am statements. I got, we got this picture, my wife and I, this week of one congregant who, not that picture, but the next picture. <clears throat> and... I don't know if you see the book they're reading, but they are reading the seven I am's of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And next week, that will be your teaching pastor up on stage. 
to communicate with you what they've learned. So that was just super cool for me that a set of parents here and their kid, man, uh, going through this, right, in their own little baby book. And the hope is that seeds will be planted in that child's young life and seeds will be planted in our lives about what Jesus has taught us about himself. So uh, second I am statement, John 8. And if you're there by now, we're going to be in verse 12. And here's what Jesus says about himself. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It says some things, there's some words there, and we certainly can understand what the words seem to say, but if we don't understand the context in which Jesus said these things, we are missing out so much of the richness and the depth and the meaning that why Jesus said it and when he said it, to totally understand what that little clause means and everything that's behind it that Jesus is saying, we've got to kind of spend a few minutes thinking about, well, when did Jesus say that? Where was Jesus when he said that? It was said at a particular moment, in a particular place, in a particular context, and understanding that's going to help us this morning understand those statements. So when did Jesus say these statements, and where was he? Well, John 7, a few verses over, a chapter over, tells us uh, some context about when Jesus made these statements. So John says this, now... The Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And a few verses later, John tells us what Jesus was doing at that feast. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. And the statement that we just read together about Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, was part of the teaching that Jesus did in the temple during this feast uh, that's called, the verse we just read, the feast of booths. So, What's this feast of booths? What's the deal with that? What in the world, if anything, does that have to do with Jesus saying light of the world? Well, the feast of booths is also called the feast of tabernacles. And throughout the Old Testament, there's certain feasts and ceremonies and traditions that the Jews followed. This was a regular feast on the Jewish calendar that lasted for several days. If you want to read more about it, you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 23. That's where it was initiated. That's where it started. This feast usually takes place in the mid-fall in our calendar. And a lot of the Jews would go to Jerusalem in the middle of the fall to celebrate this feast that had been part of the calendar for years and generations and generations. There were two big reasons, two big purposes, two big things that this feast helped the Jews do and celebrate. And the first was, it was in some ways kind of like their Thanksgiving. It was a time at the end of the agricultural season, and so they actually had this way that they would bring things forward, and they would just use that as an expression to say, man, look how God has been so good and so kind to us. One reason was kind of like their thanksgiving to show how thankful they were for God, for the good harvest that he'd given them. But a second reason, and in some ways the larger reason, is it was something in their calendar to help them remember this period of their time when they were wandering through their wilderness. One of the things that happened in the Jewish history that we read about in the Old Testament is the Jews went through this period of literally being nomadic wanderers for 40 years in the desert. And throughout that time in the desert, 
God provided for them, God cared for them, God gave them the resources that they needed. And so this feast of booths or tabernacles also reminds them, man, we were in this moment where we had nothing. And in that moment in the desert, God provided for us and God cared for us. And actually during the Feast of Booths, if you were a Jew who did what you were supposed to do, you would run out to your yard, you would grab you some twigs, you would make a little lean-to in your backyard, and you would sleep in kind of this stick hut, this stick booth, to remind you of the way that your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother and grandfather lived in these little temporary settings throughout the desert. It's like Alone. You guys ever watch that reality show Alone? Man, it's a good show. First thing they do is they build this little lean-to booth so that the grizzly bears won't eat their heads, right? And there's protection from the elements. Well, the Jewish people weren't a reality show, but they would build these little booths throughout to commemorate God's provision. And part of, I know you guys are like, okay, what does Feast of Booths have to do with light of the world? I'm glad you asked because we're getting there. Here's what it starts to have to do with it. Every night of that ceremony, every night of that several-day-long feast, there would be one part in the evening when the sun set in the temple area where there would be this light lighting ceremony. There would be this moment where there would be these massive torches lit by the priests every night of this ceremony. They were in a particular area of the temple, um, and you can just show it. Let's just show it now. They were, they were lit. These temp- this is the temple, um, and I know it's, you can't even see anything on this screen. But up there, uh, in the front half of the temple, this is called the treasury. It's also called the court of women because under the Jewish tradition, women weren't allowed to go past kind of this archway. So the women were congregated here. It was called the treasury because, you know what the Jewish people had? They had offering boxes. Offering boxes. I told some people the other day, when I got rid of passing the plate and instituted the offering boxes, I was just being very spiritual. I know some of you thought I was a heretic, but I was just being a good Christian person, doing what people did before. They had offering boxes, and in this area, this is the place where these priests would go around, and there would be these massive torch-like structures, and every night of the ceremony, the priests would light those huge, huge torches. The temple was up on a hill, and so throughout the city of Jerusalem, when people looked up to the temple area every night, what they would see would be this light. They would see this fire coming up from that area of the temple. And that fire in that moment linked with that feast was really, really symbolic to remind them of something. You may remember after September 11th, and in different moments when that has been remembered on certain anniversaries, what the city of New York has done is they have shown these massive spotlights up into the sky. And so when you look at the New York City landscape, when those lights are shining, there are these two huge pillars of light going up that are meant to remind us of what happened on that day and what was standing there on that day. Those lights in the lower part of Manhattan link our minds back to something. And in many ways, what these big torches were doing was they were linking the people's minds back to something that God had done when they were wandering through the desert. Because when they were wandering through the desert, one of the things God did is there was this pillar of fire 
You can read about it in Exodus, but through their wanderings, every night there was this pillar of fire, and we'll talk more about that, what that was. But this lighting ceremony was to be a symbol of, was to remind the people of, was to pull them back to, hey, you're celebrating God's faithfulness when you wandered through the desert. And part of what God did when you wandered through the desert was there was this pillar of fire that was there with you. The context of when... Jesus made this statement was that feast to celebrate what God had done in the past and to link back to the pillar of fire and God's faithfulness and Jesus was speaking during that time and where Jesus made the specific comment that we read we see in verse 20 of chapter 8 if you got your Bible back open to chapter 8 verse 20 tells us where Jesus made this I am statement these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not come. So Jesus was in that court of the women area. It was a huge high traffic area. In that statement, Jesus made this comment saying, I am the light of the world. And when he made that statement in this high traffic area, right next to him, either would have been lit or about to be lit in a few hours, these torches that would have reminded people of the pillar of fire. And Jesus is making this statement comparing himself to light in the very moment where there was tons of light that would link people back to thoughts about God. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is not just a throwaway statement. What Jesus is doing in this moment, he's saying, hey, Jewish people, rich within your tradition is this understanding of God being light. Rich within your tradition is this understanding of this pillar of fire. And Jesus is linking back and leveraging all the ways that light represented God in the Old Testament to bring certain comparisons about himself. Light for the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament signified God's presence. God's presence. And we're just going to spend a few minutes thinking through, okay, what was Jesus trying to convey by linking back to this statement? What's he saying about himself? And then we're going to think about, based on what Jesus is saying about himself, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? First thing Jesus is doing is saying, Jewish people, you understand that light in your Old Testament in a variety of ways represents God's presence. Probably one of the most significant ways it showed God's presence was through that pillar of fire, which those torches represented. And here's what Exodus tells us about that pillar of fire. If you want to know more about it, you can check out Exodus 13 later this afternoon and read through it. But here's some things we see about this pillar of fire that Jesus is referencing and and linking to and implying he's connected with. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. What what the pillar of fire represented to the Jewish people was, hey, Jewish people, you may not know where you're going. You may not know your next step. You may not know what's in store. You may be wondering why you've been walking around in a circle for 34 years. But with all those questions and with all those unknowns, what the pillar of fire showed to the people was, look, I am not departing from you. That I, God, am present with you in this moment. 
For the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament, light was a symbol of God's presence. One of the things the pillar of fire represented was God's presence. And what Jesus is saying through the statement about being, I am the light of the world, is what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, I'm present with you. As you're trying to figure out what I am and who I am, what you need to know is just like the triune God was present with you, I, a member of the triune God, I am present here now with you. Jesus is present. It's one of the things the I am the light of the world statements show. And so here's what that means for you and for me this morning. Since, and I'm saying it in the first person. Since Jesus is present... I can know that I will never be alone. Since Jesus is present, you can know as a believer in Jesus that you will never be alone. That's maybe this morning huge for some of us. If we just pause and think about that. Maybe it's not huge for you this morning, but maybe a year from now. That simple statement, knowing that you're not alone, that, that's going to be the only fresh drop of water that you have when what you're going through. I, um, <clears throat> I, I say it the same way because it's true. One of the uh, unique aspects of this job is you get to celebrate with people in the best moments of their life. And you also get to walk with people in their hardest moments of life and their most private moments of life that others of jobs don't always get invited into. Um, I've had the privilege at different times in my life to be with folks in their final hours of life for a variety of different reasons. Um, and I remember one individual, uh, I mean, it was, it was near the end and they were about to see Jesus. And I remember I'd spent some time there with this person, and uh, it was just myself and them, and I was getting ready to leave. And this person said to me, Peter, don't leave. I just don't want to be alone. And so I stayed. I stayed. Didn't say anything. Um, just held this person's hand, just together. They just didn't want to be alone in, in that moment. When you're going through a hard time, <clears throat> when life isn't working out the way that you want it to, when the script is shifted and you're processing through that, what can compound the pain and the discouragement of that moment is feeling like you're alone. Going through that is hard enough, but when you're going through that and you feel like there's nobody there who can be in that space just present with you, that just makes it even harder. And when Jesus was trying to convey in the temple on that day, one of the things he was trying to let you and I know is that no matter what you're going through, where you are, he is present with you in that. And since he is present with you, you can know that no matter what you're facing, you will never be alone. There's another inference that Jesus is trying to convey 
through this allusion, through this linking of himself back to the pillar of fire. And, and if we go back to the Exodus passage, we see another reason for what the pillar <clears throat> of fire did. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel in day of night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them before the Lord. What God was doing through this kind of the same uh, atmospheric, miraculous thing that was happening was one of the jobs of that cloud and that pillar of fire. You know what it was? He went before them by a pillar to lead them. To lead them. The way this thing worked is no matter what time of day it was, when this, this meteorological apparition, divine thing, when that thing moved, you know what the Jewish people did? They got up and they followed it. They went where that thing caused them to go, and when that pillar of fire, that cloud stopped, they're like, okay, this is where we're camping out for the night. Get out the tents. <clears throat> get your Swiss Army knife. Let's get some, let's get some hot dogs over this. Well, I guess they wouldn't eat hot dogs. That was bad pork analogy. <laughs> All right, I don't know what, the, anyway, right? The, the, it would lead them. It, w- it would show them where to go, and where it took them is where they were to follow. What Jesus is saying by this is, look, just like that pillar of fire that these torches represent that are sitting right here, that'll be lit in a few hours, just like those torches represent God's presence, those torches also represented God's, the cloud also represented God's leadership. And what Jesus is saying when he's saying, I am the light of the world, he's not only implying that I'm here to be present with you, he's implying also that just the way that that pillar of fire and that light led you, I'm here to lead you. What we see from this second kind of observation about Jesus is that Jesus leads us. Jesus leads us. And the takeaway, if you're taking notes, which you can take in your bulletin or on an app, if you got the Calvary app, is this. Very simple to write down and read, not always so simple to do. Since Jesus leads me, what what does that mean? What should we do? We should follow him. Since Jesus leads us, we should follow him. The pillar of fire, the cloud went. The people are like, we don't know where we're going, but we're going to follow. And what Jesus says is, hey, I'm, I'm here to lead you. I'm here to guide you. And since he leads us, we should follow him. Is there a path, a direction that Jesus is asking you to take this morning? career change, new approach in your parenting, having a conversation with somebody to say that you're sorry, forgiving somebody who has asked you to forgive them, stewarding your money and your time in a different way, stop being such a gossip, ask the Holy Spirit to help you control your temper. Is there something that that Jesus is leading you down a path and saying, obey me, that maybe you don't want to take. Probably. There's different paths. Jesus is like, hey, bro, that, that's kind of what you're supposed to be doing. I'm like, hmm, I don't know if I like that. Uh, can we come up with a plan B? How about you reroute me like Waze? I love when Waze reroutes me. Can, Jesus, can you maybe reroute me from that? Because that, oh, <clears throat> unknown, scary, not sure. Let, let's go a different path. Let's take the scenic path. Is there something that Jesus is leading you and asking you and directing you and nudging you or pulling you to do this morning?
that you don't want to do. Well, sorry that you don't want to do it. Because if Jesus is leading you to do it, then you should follow him. Because part of what he does is the light as he leads you. There's this analogy that, oh, man, I appreciate my wife always reminding me of about light. Um, and and you, you've done what I've done, right? You Somehow you locked yourself out of the house at night, but you always have your phone because I never go, well, I don't have my phone now, right? You've locked yourself out of the house at night. Nobody's listening. You have your phone. Nobody's responding. You know there's this hidden key, but it is like dark, right? It's 1045. You took the garbage out and you're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to trip, right? I don't want to step on our tomato plants. So what do you do? You pull out your handy dandy iPhone. And you use your thumbs that are the thumbs of like a magician. And you swipe or you double click and you get that flashlight on. That amazing flashlight. And the flashlight, you kind of put in front of you and like, okay, here's the fake rock. that every, Everybody knows I could come to your house and in 10 seconds figure out where your key's hidden. I'm just telling you all. It's either the rock that doesn't look like a rock. It's the rock that looks like a rock that somewhere it shouldn't be. It's, it's on a nail under your deck. It's like under some planter that oh, you're like, I'll be real original. I'll put it under a mat in the front door. No, I could find your key in 10 seconds. But if your house is being robbed this afternoon, it's not me, okay? We, what we do is we take the iPhone. We kind of get a, we find where that thing is. We lift up the rock. We take out the key. We do the iPhone flashlight to the door, and we open the door. The iPhone flashlight is great. But when you're doing your iPhone flashlight, it's going to let you kind of see a little bit in front of you. But, man, that thing's not illuminating your neighbor's backyard. It's not. If you live in Tashua and you're trying to find your key hidden under your flower plant with your iPhone part light, you, there's no light coming to Calvary Church because it doesn't go that far. iPhone lights, when we use them, they only show us a step or two in front of us. They don't show us the whole path. They don't show us the whole backyard. They simply tend to show us just the next step to take as we're trying to find that key. And that's the way it is with God. It is very unlikely he's going to show you the end destination. It's very unlikely he's going to show you how all the twists and turns are going to end up and what it's going to look like a year from now. Many times what God shows you is the step in front of you. And he says... Even though the rest of it may seem dark, even though the rest of it isn't yet illuminated, even though you don't know how it's going to turn out, you know the one who does. And you know the one who's leading you. And the one who is leading you and the one who knows says, hey, take the step that I've illuminated in front of you. And once you've taken that step, I'll show you the next step to take. Is there something that Jesus is leading you to do and that you don't want to do? And a lot of times you don't want to do it because you're like, I'll do it if I know how it's all going to turn out. You probably wouldn't. If I knew how some of the steps of obedience that I took were going to turn out in the short term, I probably wouldn't have taken it because I would have done a risk-reward analysis and the risk wouldn't have been worth it. We all think if we know how the story ends, that would make it easier. I don't know if it would. I think what makes it the easiest is knowing who does know how the story ends. Who says, I'm good, I'm caring, I'm loving, I'm all-powerful, I'm all-knowing. I want and I'm focused on what is best for you. And so I'm directing you, shining a little light on the next step to take. 
So take it. So take it. Jesus, there's also these layers of what Jesus is referring to. He, he's kind of doing some things other than just linking back to the pillar of fire. This is really interesting. How did Jesus refer to himself as? What did he say? What was this phrase? I'll be here all week. I can wait. Yeah, I am what? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. In that culture, in that day, when people heard Jesus being referring to himself as the light or even the light of the world, it wouldn't be this new idea to them because there were other things in that culture, in that moment, that were referred to either as light or, interestingly, as actually light of the world. The Jews had the Torah, they had their scripture, but they also had all of their traditions that they had made, that they had attitude, and they referred to their traditions as, guess what it is? Yes, you win the prize, the light. They referred to their man-made traditions as the light. There was also this dude running around Jerusalem, this well-known rabbi, influential, lots of followers, whose name was Johann ben Zakai. And he was revered for his teaching, he was revered from his wisdom, and his followers, right, the nickname that he got was Light of the World. There was another rabbi running around this time in this culture who was referred to as the light of the world. There were these man-made traditions being referred to as the light, right? Like as the things to be followed. And against those claims, what Jesus was saying is, no, 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 hold on, hold on. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus is superior to other truth claims. That's what he's trying to make. One of the things he's saying in this statement, like, you guys have all your thoughts about what is light. You have all your thoughts about what is true. You have all your thoughts to be what is followed. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, I am the light of the world. I am the truth. Jesus is superior to other truth claims. And what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for me? Since Jesus is superior to other truth claims, what it means is that you, me, we, I should listen to him. I should listen to him. Now, some of you, you're not there yet. Some people in this room are watching live stream or watching online later this week. You're like, bro, just because you're telling me he's true, well, I don't, I, that doesn't mean I need to believe he's true. That's fine. Press into it. But one thing that you cannot deny about Jesus is throughout all the biographies about him, what Jesus repeatedly says again and again and again, look, there's all these other claims to truth, but I'm the truth. I'm the truth. You can't deny that Jesus made that claim. Historians won't deny. Critical scholars who don't believe anything about his divinity don't deny it. The question is, was he right when he said it? Was he right when he said it? And to use the old cliche, when Jesus made statements like that, was he just absolutely crazy? A lunatic? Was he some pathological liar who's the biggest con man in history? Or was he actually telling the truth? And does events like the resurrection, people willing to die for the belief that he actually was telling the truth. Not what they knew to be false, but what they thought was true. If they started the lie, nobody's going to die for a lie. Maybe one or two people. You ain't going to get hundreds and thousands of people to die for a lie. You'll get them to die for what they believe to be true. For some of us, maybe where we are this morning is we got to land somewhere on what's true. For a lot of us today, what we think is true is ourselves, 
Well, I'm the arbiter of truth. Well, that, that's your claim to truth. But at some point, every single one of us needs to decide what is true. And what Jesus puts out into that landscape is, I am true. Some of you processing through that still. Others of you, you believe it. And if you believe that Jesus is superior to other truth claims, if you really, really believe that Jesus is superior to other truth claims, then you know what that means for you? You should listen to him. You should take what is said in this book about him and about what he says, and you should say, I don't know if I understand. Right? It might not make sense. If I wrote the book, I'd write it differently. But Jesus is superior to other truth claims, and so I will listen to him. And there's, there's some other things that Jesus is saying here, but one more huge reality that Jesus is conveying when he says to be light of the world. In that temple, in that moment, the Jewish people were looking for the Messiah. The Jewish people were looking for someone to come rescue them. The Jewish people were looking for this hero figure to ride in and to make things the way they were supposed to be. And throughout all of what the Jewish people would have known, throughout all these prophecies giving these spoiler alerts about what the Messiah is like, these descriptions about what the Messiah is like, there's this repeated idea about what this person is like. And if you're playing at home, along at home, you probably know that description. The description is this Messiah will be a light. A light. Here's what some of the prophets say in Isaiah. Isaiah 42.6. I am the Lord, I've called you by righteousness. This is God speaking to the Jewish people. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Excuse me, I'm actually wrong. God is speaking about the figure to the figure who will be the Messiah. And what the, God is saying to the Messiah figure is, hey, you're going to end up being like a light for the nations. That idea is repeated in Isaiah 49.6, the same idea, right? God's talking to this future person, right, in this hypothetical conversation, the Messiah figure, and saying, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you, the Messiah figure, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the earth. And one of the prophecies about the coming Messiah we see in another passage of Scripture that talks about this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. What God is saying in the prophecies is on that day when the Messiah comes, it will be as if the people who have been stumbling along in darkness have seen a great light. And the people who are looking for hope, what Jesus declares on that moment is saying, I'm the light of the world. I'm that light. Jesus is, right? He then kind of conveys the benefit. He's saying he's the light, but he also moves into conveying what will happen. I'm the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. One of the things the Messiah did was to come to bring salvation, to bring hope, and to bring rescue, and to bring deliverance, and in a spiritual way to bring forgiveness and to bring restoration. And, and what Jesus is saying is, I ask the promised Messiah, I am the one who's come, and what I will give to the people, not only am I the light, but what I will give to the people who follow me is I will give to them the light of life. I will give to them hope. It's going to look different than they thought. It's not going to be me setting up a kingdom right here in this moment, 
But what I am going to set up is this, this restored relationship between them and God. I'm going to give them the light of life. I'm going to give them forgiveness from their father who loves them. I'm going to give them hope. I'm going to give them reconciliation. I'm going to give them the assurance that when their story on earth is over, their story isn't over, but it begins in the presence of an amazing God who is better than they can imagine for all of eternity. Because what Jesus was willing to do as the Messiah was take on himself the very thing that separated you from that hope. We sang about living hope, but for many of us, there was no way, there, for all of us, there's no way that we could ever do anything to get that hope. We needed someone to give that hope to us. And so what Jesus said is the light, I'm going to come and I'm going to take from everybody what has separated them from the hope of eternity with God. I'm going to be punished for them instead of them so that all they'll know is God's blessing and acceptance and love and grace and indwelling of the Holy Spirit and presence forever. I'll ask the worship team to come forward and our two elders can come forward and here's our last thing we see this morning. Jesus is the promised Savior. That's what he's saying about the light. All that stuff about the Messiah, all those prophecies about the Messiah being light, Jesus is saying, I'm the promised Savior. And since Jesus is the promised Savior, what that means for you is one of two things. It can mean that you either can have peace with God if that's not where you are yet today. And for those of us who have responded in faith to Christ, it means that we do have peace with God. Some of us, we're still thinking through who Jesus was. But what every single one of us can know this morning is there is a way that you can have forgiveness. There's a way that you can have peace with God. There's a way that you can have restoration that doesn't put the pressure on you. It's not about you being better, not about you trying harder, not about you being good enough. Because we can't. It's about Jesus who came and said, I will be a substitute for you. If you leave, whenever my season at Calvary Church is done, the one thing I hope you leave with is the idea of Jesus is a substitute, 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 substitute. Jesus was punished for you. Jesus was punished because of you so that you would never, ever, ever have to experience anything but the immense love of God which gives us hope of forgiveness. That whatever we've done in the past, whatever baggage we wish we didn't have, whatever choices were for the story, right, it can be forgiven. And it's forgiven not by doing more, but simply by responding in faith. And if and when you respond to faith in Jesus, in that moment you do have peace with God. And for those of you this morning who have responded in faith to Jesus, what I want to remind you of again this morning is that you do have peace with God. In that moment, there was a union between you and God. That union can never, ever, 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 ever be broken. The union, the relationship, the forgiveness, man, you're good. And maybe this morning some of you are carrying around this baggage because the past week you feel like you've been bad. And you're like, man, okay, i got to get to church five minutes early. Because if I can get to church five minutes early, and maybe I'll read a psalm before the sermon starts, right? Because then I'll, 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 I'll show God that I really love him and I'm really sorry about that, and then he'll love me again. Man, God loves you. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It is finished. Now, can our communion with God, right, get blurred by choice? Sure, but union, unchanging. And some of you maybe just need reassurance this morning of the security that you have in Christ because of the finished work of Jesus. There is therefore no more condemnation. We now have peace with God. And so as a group of people this morning who believe that in Jesus, we have a way to celebrate that, to remind ourselves, to speak that truth to one another. And we do that through the very thing that Jesus initiated, which is a ceremony for us, which is a ritual for us, right? We don't celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's goodness, but what we as Christians celebrate is, right, the, the, this, this communion event to remember God's goodness and faithfulness. And so what we're going to do this morning is I would just invite you, if you're a believer this morning, just to take a few minutes of quiet in your seat. And man, just think about the amazing truth that you have peace with God, not because of anything you've done. Take a moment just to be thankful for that, pray over that. If there is anything in this week that has impacted your communion with God, not your communion with God, man, take a moment just to ask forgiveness, right? Going back to the cross, thanking Jesus for the cross. And then when you're ready and as you're ready, come forward and there'll be a prepackaged packet. And we're not going to take that together, uh, but you can return to your seats and then in your own time with your Savior, take the elements to remember him and we'll sing some songs and I'll conclude his service, this service together. So when you're ready and as you're ready, feel free to come forward to collect the elements and then return to your seats to take them on your own time.